begin. The Internet, a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities. To explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human. Only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds. Only some are brave enough to be called. The Internet Explorers. Hey everybody, welcome to the newest episode of Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. Internet Explorers? That's our name, that's what we do. This is a pretty special episode, because I realize I say that every single episode so far. No, this one, guys. No, this one. This one's a special one. This is a special episode, Evan, because this is the first episode that we're going to have a guest speaker, so people aren't going to have to listen to us talking the whole time. I feel like every episode so far has been, like, the first time we're doing X, the first time we're doing Y. We're breaking new ground constantly. We're afraid of stagnation, and... uh <laughs> So Evan, this is also a very special episode. You know why? Because uh, this is our first two-part episode. We are doing a series about the Syrian civil war. In particular, how what we're noticing is the internet can be used to fight wars in ways that we haven't seen before. This first part is going to be discussing ISIS. How ISIS uses the internet to recruit people, how it uses it to wage its war, and how ISIS is really building a country using the internet. Alright guys, I'm so excited to introduce our very first guest speaker on the podcast. A very dear friend of mine, we go way back. Way, way back. Soon to be Dr. Stefan Georgievich. Stefan, uh, do you want to let us in on what's been going on with you? What are you studying? What are you going to be talking about today? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you guys for inviting me to the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's an exciting opportunity, and I hope we'll all learn a little bit from each other. I think we will. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, so my specialization is on military and cultural history. I work on a period around the First and Second World War particularly modern Europe, but I've taught military history on a broad level, so anything from the ancient Greeks to Napoleon to the War on Terror. But currently what I'll be talking about for most of this podcast is a new project I'm working on. I'm really interested in studying the digital dimension of the current war in Syria. Right. So the war in Syria, it's in its seventh year by now. Currently, is it really seven years already? It's seven years. It'll be eight soon. That's crazy. And it's one of these wars that we've seen so much of in the last couple of decades. These civil wars that simply are interminable. They simply don't end. Right. They don't have a clean conclusion the way something like World War II did, for example. They just keep on going and going. They're transforming year by year. Good comparison is Afghanistan. That's a war that's been going on for 16 years. That's not ending anytime soon either, to give some right. perspective. I want to look at how this war has changed digital spaces. The way how we use social media, for example, to write about the war, to document it. By the same time, how digital space has been weaponized and made the tools of war by the various factions. Right. I think in looking at Syria and the digital dimension of Syrian war, we can see how the internet and how mass communication has changed the face of war in general. Right. So, so wars are being fought online as well as on the ground. Absolutely. I think that any historian of modern war will have to realize that there's a digital front. And it's an incredibly powerful front as well. So as sort of a, a primer, before we really get into the weeds of all of this, let's talk a little bit about the Syrian civil war. What is it? Who is fighting? Before we get into sort of the digital aspect of that war. Absolutely. Well, you asked who is fighting it, and that's a really difficult question, Evan. I have to say many, <laughs> to 
Yay. Many reams of pages have been written about it. Volumes have been written and rewritten. And to a certain extent, it's difficult to say who everyone is. It's really difficult to identify all the combatants of this war. Because they've changed. In different parts of the war, you have different factions coming and going. There's ebbs and tides. But to give a broad macro view of the war, what happened is in 2011, there was a major event known as the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. And that led to democratic revolutions in parts of North Africa and the Middle East. These were successful to an extent, and like any democratic process, it's, it's never fully successful, particularly in this part of the world. Tunisia, Morocco to a certain extent, Libya, and Egypt all saw the collapse of one-party dictatorial states. And Egypt, one could argue, we're back to having a one-party military state now, but it's complicated. We saw the fall of Gaddafi. And then the next country down the map is Syria, if you're just kind of moving from west to east along North Africa and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And for a few months, Syria is very quiet. Now, what you have to understand about Syria before the war starts, so I'm talking about Syria in 2010-2011, is it's a one-party dictatorship, and it's run by a man called Bashir al-Assad. Bashir al-Assad inherited his position as president. Not that Syria's ever had a free election. Yeah, I like the idea of inheriting the presidency. Bashir actually went to medical school in Great Britain. He would have, in a normal life, he would have been a doctor. What happened was in 1993, his older brother died. And this presidency works very much like a monarchy, so the oldest brother succeeds the father. So Bashir al-Assad found out some 20 years ago that he will be the lifelong president of Syria. And Syria is a very ethnically and religiously divided country. Mm-hmm. And he rules over a country that has, uh, that has Sunni, Shia, Kurdish, Druze, and Christian subjects. So it's very diverse, it's very complicated. And for a long time, Assad and his father had been able to maintain monopoly on power by retaining monopoly on violence. Okay. They had the loyalty of the army, the secret police, the regular police force, and different paramilitary militias. And their strategy was essentially to equalize between the different minorities, to oppress everyone equally, which in a way is a kind of freedom, <laughs> wouldn't you say? There you go. It's, it's, typical, very, it's a very liberal way of uh, going about oppressing people. It's, a very, it's very typical, a lot of these one-party dictatorships across the Middle East. This is not a strategy that Saad or his father came up with. It's just typical of the region. But in the years leading up to the Arab Spring, Assad in theory was liberalizing. There were some token reforms. They only existed to make sure that there would be fewer international sanctions on Syria. At the same time, the Syrian economy entered into a downward spiral. It was decreasing year by year. And frequently, as you'll see in these regions, when the economy goes down in one of our dictatorships, people suddenly start realizing they're actually being repressed right. economically mm. as well as politically. So there were murmurings of discontent. They were just that murmurings. They didn't really hit critical mass. And then, in the middle of 2011, you started seeing small, small movements of people, small demonstrations across Syria, first in the provinces and then into the center. And these follow, one might say, the roadmap of other Arab Spring protests. So when you say st- they started in the provinces and moved to the center, you're saying like this was like the start off in like the rural areas and slowly moved to the cities? Like? Partly the rural areas, but also smaller cities where the central government, where secret police had less of a presence. Okay. And a lot of these actual small, small gatherings, these protests that started, had a digital dimension of their own. They were being tweeted in real time, Twitter, Facebook or technologies that were used to organize protests. And the protests really take off incredibly quickly. Once they start, it's a powder keg that goes off all across Syria. Assad does what pretty much every dictator will try to do in this situation, is when you have protests, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, 
And really within about two weeks of protests starting, you're seeing hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Raqqa, of Damascus, of Aleppo. He orders the police and the army to fire on the protesters. Okay. This is the guy, this is essentially the playbook of how a dictatorship deals with protests going back to the Russian Revolution. So, so far what you're saying is that this, this revolution is playing out pretty much the way that we've seen it historically. Exactly. Okay. And it's keeping in sort of the general team of the Arab Spring right. as well. And what happens is some of these army units and police units simply refuse to shoot orders. And this is really the litmus test of a government, of whether a government is legitimate. Sociological theory tells us a state is legitimate if it has a monopoly on violence. What that means is if the government is the only institution that has the right to kill someone, it's the only institution that has the right to have an army. So at this point, when the army resists your order to fire and actually goes over on the side of protesters, you have the makings of a civil war. You have the makings of a huge crisis of legitimacy. It means that people very high up in the side government infrastructure suddenly saying, no, we'll not listen to central government. And you see defections. You see entire military units go over to the opposition. You see ministers, people who had made our livelihood as Assad's aides, also simply resign from their positions and go over and align themselves with what is now becoming a very heterogeneous opposition. Define heterogeneous for us. Heterogeneous, uh, multivaried. And it's multivaried and diverse probably because Syria as a country is so diverse. Right. Not only do you have three different faiths, Sunni and Shia Islam and Christianity, you also have different ethnic groups, such as the Alawites and the Druze and the Kurds. It's a very complicated landscape ethnically. And a lot of these groups have grievances not only against Assad, but against each other. So what you see is, you see the central government loses control of the provinces. But they don't always lose control of the province of the same group. Oh, I see. So, uh, so the, the central authority of the government is being questioned, but there is no single opposition to it the way we'd see in like the American Civil War or something like that? No, absolutely not. Right. That degree of centralization never exists among the opposition. And it makes complete sense. If you look at in areas of, for example, majority Shia Islam, their entire view of society, of culture, is very different from the areas which are peopled by the Kurds. Now, the Shias and the Kurds were both oppressed by Assad. So they have a lot of problems with Assad. But it doesn't exactly mean that that's enough to give them a common ground. And they're making different kinds of claims. Some of this opposition is arguing that Syria needs to be a unitary republic, that Syria needs to have free elections, and that all the peoples of Syria should remain as citizens of Syria. Some other groups, though, like the Kurds, are looking at the collapse of Assad's authority and saying the Kurds have a right to their own state inside of Syria. They might also be for democracy, but it's a very different kind of democracy for a very different kind of Syria. You also have different groups of Islamicists, some who argue, some who are radicals and think that Syria should be governed by Sharia law. Some who believe there just needs to be some kind of equanimity between Sharia law and civic law, the kind that Syrians got from France. And others who just believe in that Islam should be seen as a cultural force at the same time, but they believe is fully, they can fully live alongside democracy. Okay. So in a couple of months, the civil war starting. The central government has lost authority in much of the provinces. It's losing more and more authority each day. Because all these soldiers who have defected to the opposition are now actively fighting Assad's army. And there's a blanket group that we think of as the opposition. And this will usually, when you see American and British reportage on Syria, they talk about the opposition capital. And this group is known as the Free Syrian Army. Right, okay. They are the opposition the U.S. likes the most. 
And who are they? Are they are they one single group actually? They are. That's an excellent question. They're conglomerate of groups. Okay. Broadly, you could say their consensus is that that Syria should be a united country that should be democratically governed. But they have some secular Republicans and different types of Islamists as well. So not not one ideology, but they can agree on a few things. Okay. What also happens is the Kurds have their own army at this point. And all of these opposition groups are quickly arming themselves. Yet at this moment, it looks like Assad will be toppled. It's not quite clear... What, so what year is it that we're at right now? We're in because 2011. Still in 2011? In 2011. This is the critical moment. Okay. Because what's happening is the opposition has taken some of the larger cities, like Aleppo and Raqqa, and they're advancing on Damascus, the capital. And there's only essentially one military formation left between the opposition and the capital. It's poorly paid. It's poorly trained. Like I said, the Syrian economy hasn't been doing great for a very long time. And many Syrian army troops have not been paid for months. It's one of many reasons why they didn't defect from the regime. And at this point, the Syrian conflict becomes a lot more complicated. Not to say it was simple before. Because at this point, Assad does two things. One, he releases political prisoners. And he releases particular political prisoners who are held because of their association with various Islamists and terrorist groups. So what is the, the goal behind doing that? The goal behind this is essentially to poison the well of the opposition. To add these new radical voices to the opposition, which could radicalize oh. the opposition and perhaps cause sort of Western admirers of the opposition to take a step back and not fully commit themselves. So the idea here is he's releasing people who are considered dangerous with the expectation that they will then join these groups and then spread a toxic ideology or something? Exactly. Oh, wow. Okay. He's also hoping they'll continue to divide the opposition. Okay. Because... Uh, so a name that David has heard me talk about for a very long time is a particular story no, known as Bernard Lewis. We just sep- celebrated his 100th birthday. He is an institution unto himself. And Lewis has really studied what he calls the crisis of Islam. And what he really means when he says that he talks about the relationship between Islam and democracy, 21st century, 20th, 21st century. And Lewis's conclusion is that the appeal of radical Islam to a lot of people in the Middle East isn't because they themselves are radicals religiously but because it's one of few ideologies that was able to set itself up against the ideology of a dictatorial state. How so? Because you had these one-party dictatorships, these strongman rulers in Iraq, in Iran, in Syria, in Egypt, and a lot of them were one-party rulers who were looking for support from the U.S. or from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And he repressed the right people to organize, to have political liberties. And Islamism was a political force in this we region for a long time. But it was also one of the few political ideologies could be organized for a network of madrasas, of schools, of universities. There's infrastructure already existing. Was, exactly. That different kinds of the opposition simply didn't have in the region. So people start identify as Islamism is a way of criticizing the regime. Okay. So when Assad lets loose all of these Islamists who are held in prisons because they're seen as a threat, he knows they will help popular support in certain parts of Syrian society. That's one thing he does. The other thing that Saad does is he goes to, over, to Iran and he asks Iran for help. This is not a natural alliance. One of the reasons this alliance with Iran is not natural at all is because Iran, as we know, is a, it's a Shia-dominated theocracy. But the Iranians, because they want to spread their influence in the region, they agree to back Assad. And they send about 60,000 troops. In theory, volunteers. 
as well as some generals and, and a lot of military equipment. And this stems the tide early on in the war. So at this point, Assad is able to consolidate his position a little bit. And it ensures the war will keep on going. The opposition is more powerful than Assad is. Because actually a lot more of the Syrian army has either deserted it or gone over to the opposition and is fighting for the government. But there's a stalemate because Assad still has the better hardware. And he's getting money and supplies and men from Iran. Right. It goes until 2013. There's a stalemate for two years. And there's fighting, there's sieges all across the region. At that point, Assad decides to use chemical weapons against his own people. Right. And as we saw. There's disturbing footage of it. Yeah. If you just look on YouTube, you can find some absolutely disgusting, disturbing images of small children being gassed. Yeah, it's horrendous stuff. Yeah, Very disturbing, actually. But once that happens, there's a massive outcry across what you think of as the West, in the United States, in France, in Germany, Great Britain, the media. And President Barack Obama goes on television. And he says that Assad has crossed a red line. The use of chemical weapons shows a red line. That is simply unacceptable to what we think of as the rules of modern war. At that point, a lot of people expect the U.S. and NATO to interfere. To back the opposition directly and actually send some troops underground or intensify a bombing campaign against Assad. They don't do this. In 2013-14, this crucial year, the Western democracies simply stay bad. And a lot of this is really the legacy of the war in Iraq, which was seen as an illegal war by so much American electorate. It was seen as a war, wrong war at the wrong time that wasted American blood and treasure. So we stayed out of Syria, essentially, because we didn't want... Not it was Iraq. bad. Yeah, exactly. And Iraq is very similar to Syria in that it's a kaleidoscope of different faiths and ethnicities. It's a very complicated country. By this point, Assad actually used chemical weapons against people because he was losing the war. It was a last gambit. Mm-hmm. Even with Iranian support, the Iranians were not fighting very well. Uh, they, were, they didn't have very high motivation. Their equipment was still second rate. The leadership was poor. And there were frictions between the sort of Syrian soldiers who now found themselves fighting under Iranian commanders. But Assad now finds another ally, and that's Putin. And the entry of Russia really moves this from a conflict of the Middle Eastern conflict, the Syrian conflict, into a proxy war of the great powers. Right. What Putin wants is Putin wants a base on the Mediterranean Sea. He believes in zones of influence. And I kind of have this mental image of Putin just having a risk board in his house and moving little toy soldiers across. This is, this is exactly like Stannis on Game of Thrones with the giant <laughs> the map table. Exactly. Oh, yeah. What a great table. <laughs> I don't think Putin has one just like it. So I'm going to bring up something that somebody might consider and say, well, proxy wars were a staple of the Cold War. What, what would be the difference between Soviet foreign policy and maybe Putin's attempt to gain a base on the Mediterranean? So the Soviet Union, in theory, always fought an ideological war with the West. The goal of the Soviet Union, in theory, was always to spread global communism, not to spread the power of the communists of the Russian state, the Soviet state. Putin is interested in power. Quite simply, he's interested in power and influence, the way a traditional Russian 18th, 19th century leader would have been. He's interested in the balance of power between the great powers and expansion and being able to project power in different regions, which is one of the signs of being great power is if you can sort of force other powers in a region to bend to your will. Mm-hmm. And this goal of having a Mediterranean port is an obsession of Russian Tsars going back to the time of Peter the Great. It predates Putin by 350 years. It's a constant of Russian foreign policy. The, just what, some sort of like some feeling like we've got to be like Alexander the Great or something? 
not quite. It's this belief that if you control the Mediterranean, you can strike in the heart of Europe. You can right. be a force in Europe and the Middle East as well. All right, that's tactical. Right. Okay. It's also, for Putin, it's about respect. Putin mm. really wants Russia to be seen as a great power. And interfering in Syria gives him a way to do that. Mm. So Putin gives Assad first diplomatic protection. Any UN Security Council resolution against Syria is immediately vetoed mm. by Russia. And he's helped in this also by China, which has certain economic interests in Syria. But it's mainly, it's Russian-driven. It allows Putin to get close to Iran. It gives him another major regional power as an ally. And it gives him that base that he needs in the Mediterranean, because that's part of the deal with Assad. Assad gives over the major port of Syria on the Mediterranean coast, Latika. The major air base there is put under Russian control. And the port facilities are open to the Russians for use. And the Russians start funneling huge quantities of resources into Syria. They send their bombers, their helicopters. And this really works to decisively turn the war into Assad's advantage. It doesn't do this overnight. So what, it, so what year are we talking about now? Because we've kind of been yeah. moving into 2013. What We're year into 2014-15 okay. at this point. And when Russia enters the war, there's one thing that's clear. Assad really cannot lose militarily. He literally cannot lose or he can't afford to lose? I mean, Putin will not allow Assad to lose. Okay. He will keep on sending resources and men because at this point, Russia's prestige and Russia's legitimacy, the question of if Russia will respect it, is on the line. It's a line to sand for Putin. They can't withdraw from. So is what you're getting at is now the opposition must find a new front to fight? Well, yes. Is that too dramatic? uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I say is, at the same time that this is happening, remember all those prisoners that uh, that Assad let loose? Yes. Well, they've been doing exactly what Assad wanted them to do. They've been radicalizing the opposition. And one of the things that happens in these civil wars, if there's no immediate outcome, the opposition usually will even self-radicalize. They will look, they will be frustrated by slow progress. So some of these groups originally said that, say, Islam and democracy can be fully integrated together, are, are moving away from that position to a more radical one. They're thinking that maybe Islamist dictatorship would be a good response. They'll turn to Assad. And a new version of radical Islam, a truly novel version, I cannot state this enough, how novel this is in the history of war and terrorism, is developing in Syria and in Iraq at this point. That is the genesis of the Islamic State. Right. ISIS or ISIL, Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. ISIL is usually used by U.S. intelligence agents talking about. The Yesh is another word for it. And what ISIS wants to be is it wants to be a terrorist organization that is also a state. That is new. That is not a goal that Al-Qaeda had. That is not what the Muslim Brotherhood even had. This is a terror state, which promises to be the new caliphate. And ISIS is able to overrun positions held by both the opposition and by Assad in Syria. Because a lot of these troops are demoralized, especially in the provinces away from the major cities. They've been poorly supplied. And there's just general chaos. So up until this point, had there been elements of the opposition fighting each other? Or is this the first point in which an opposition force starts fighting against other opposition forces? There had been some fighting, particularly between the Kurds and uh, sorry, I might say Syrian opposition. But ISIS is a new stage of this. Mm. Because what's also happening is some of the other opposition groups are allying themselves with ISIS as well. 
And these are all armed groups. At this point, the opposition, if you count everyone, has about 250,000 men under arms, wow. which is a considerably large number. Right. Yeah. ISIS by itself never has more than 30 to 40,000, at least in Syria. But it's able to make strategic alliance to other parts of the opposition, which helped them. Their men are also very highly motivated, fairly well trained, actually, and incredibly con- confident in their own victory. That's important. That sort of moral courage really matters still in 21st century wars. The other thing that complicates this is this: the war in Syria has caused a massive humanitarian crisis that quickly goes beyond Syria's borders. Right. Mm. As of today, 5.5 million people have fleed from Syria as a result of the conflict. Along with other 4.5 million are internally displaced in Syria. So to a massive uh, migration crisis in Western Europe and the rise of many right-wing parties as well as in response in Europe. Mm. And it has led to a huge refugee crisis in the Middle East as well. Countries like Jordan and Turkey, and to a small extent Israel, are flush with Syrian, victim, uh, Syrian immigrants. For example, there's about 1.5 million in Jordan alone. Wow. wow, yeah. And Jordan is not a particularly large country. Right. right. There's this general theme of this conflict is getting bigger and bigger. It's getting in more and more countries. By the point that ISIS comes into it, I would argue this becomes a global war. Okay. Because ISIS is not interested just in winning in Syria. It's interested in creating the caliphate. The, and the caliphate was the medieval original Muslim state. That's what it called itself. A global caliphate. So it's engaged in global war. So it wants to spread its ideology, its particular radical interpretation of Islam, not just to Syria or to Iraq, where the fighting is first taking place, but to France, to the United States, to Mexico, to the Philippines. And this move, when ISIS becomes a player, it, it makes sure this is not just a regional conflict, not just a great power conflict, but one conflict whose dimension could strike anywhere across the globe. So victory against ISIS, for example isn't just a victory you have to win in Syria. It's a victory you have to win for hearts and minds of people the world over. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly where the digital conflict comes into play, is so much as fighting against ISIS is taking place on the internet. And ISIS's self-definition, how it's creating itself, is also happening through the web, which I think we'll get to later. Uh, are there any more questions about sort of the conflict in general, or is that a good enough primer for you guys? I think it's a great... I thought I thought that was the most the, the greatest most succinct and uh, informative breakdown of the Syrian yeah. conflict I've ever received. Oh, thank you very much. So there you go. That's why we got him on here. So with ISIS, what we're seeing is the idea of ISIS as the very first post-globalist empire, I guess, or, or just state in general. Is that a fair definition of them? Do you think they're essentially setting a new playbook for how to? develop a nation. I don't know if it developed a nation. Well, I, I mean, we're, we're not totally sure. Does what... the Islamic State want to consider itself a state? Is it not really a state or is it some amalgamation of a new ideology about statehood? But I think maybe what, and you correct me if I'm wrong, what you're trying to get at is, does the creation of ISIS and as the flourishing of ISIS encapsulate a new dimension of projection of power? And that's, that's how you described it. Projecting power and the projection of that power isn't the ability to make other states do your bidding, but rather your ability to strike at other states wherever you need to attack them. So in the United States, in Britain, in France. Yeah, it's kind of an open-ended question, I yeah. guess. I, I, we're kind of asking you to fill in 
what you think is going on here. Can you tell what I'm trying to ask you? <laughs> just just answer the yeah. question I have in my head. So there's quite a few questions at the table right now. Yeah. Uh, I'll try to answer them kind of in the order that I heard them. Yeah, sure. So his first question is, is ISIS a state? If you ask ISIS, yes, they are a state. They have ministers. They have an army. They have laws. ISIS territories are held by ISIS combatants. An incredibly, incredibly strict version of Sharia law is enforced. For example, all music stores are destroyed. Uh, slavery is made legal. There is an economy that is controlled by ISIS. It's usually a black market economy. But for example, they counterfeit money. They, sell, they sold oil for some time. They have some markers of statehood. What are markers of statehood about zombies when it's having an army and having a government and being? Now, the major question of statehood and legitimacy is, it's more abstract. It's this question, what makes you a state? Well, what makes you a state is other states saying, yes, you have the right to be a state. That is international legitimacy. Hmm. And that is something that ISIS does not have, and that is something ISIS will never have. <laughs> Just be said quite bluntly. It will be the only state if it ever has it. <laughs> yes, and that is its goal. Yeah. Uh, this idea of statehood comes to us from the European tradition, from the 17th century piece of Westphalia. And when you say there are states, what you're really talking about is there's a community of states. But Evan, as you kind of said as a joke, but is actually very perceptive, is ISIS's endgame is it will be the only state because its goal is world domination. Is the, the, the caliphate must be made global, must cover every inch of the world. It doesn't conform at all to our traditional ideas of statehood. But from the ISIS perspective, it is a state. But it's a state that has state actors, such as its government, its laws, its army, but also so much of its striking power comes from non-state actors it employs. These non-state actors are essentially, we would call them radicals or terrorists. Yeah, yeah. They're people who carry out ISIS's bidding outside of the war zones of Syria and Iraq. So, for example, if you think of the recent attack in Manchester, the attack two and a half weeks ago, the bombing of the, of the Sufi mosque in Egypt, the attack on the airliner in Egypt as well, uh, the attacks in Paris, uh, the Balkan attack, Hezbollah attack, all of these attacks are done by people who claim to represent ISIS. And what's fascinating is they call themselves soldiers of ISIS. Right. And that means they identify with the state. In spite of, in, in a lot of these cases, they don't, they're not geographically anywhere close to... No, they're hundreds of thousands of miles away. In some cases, the attacks in the U.S., for right. example. Uh, they have no accreditation. It's not like ISIS has a record of them. There's no... They know, don't register. hold an ISIS passport. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. You know, there's no dog tag. You know, an American soldier's a dog tag identifies them as someone who's serving in the U.S. Army as an agent of the government. That doesn't exist for ISIS. Yeah. But they insist on being taught within this model of states. But very different than a regular state. But it's another question, Evan, you were asking about, and I can see your training as a historian and how you phrased it. Uh, I meant this compliment. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm sure you did. No, I, I'm, I'm very excited that you're complimenting me. <laughs> uh, well, you talked about power projection. So this whole idea of power projection and power, in military thought, it goes, something that's been debated on since the time of Machiavelli, it goes back centuries. And it's, if a state is powerful, it can project power beyond its borders. It can invade its neighbors, it can issue embargoes, it can demand concessions. That's what you understand as power projection, right? Correct. The U.S. has... Greater power projection to understand history, for example, because we could literally send an aircraft carrier to bomb a country anywhere in the world in a couple of days, most. ISIS has power projection. 
And we see that because these attacks carried on of ISIS have taken place in the Philippines, taken place in France, the United States, in Germany, in North Africa, in West Africa, really the globe over. Right. Does ISIS have a large army? That's my question for you guys. I mean, who knows how many people consider themselves to be soldiers ideologically, but I was I was going to say it's a very it's a very not that you're trying to trick us, but it's a it's a question that is intentionally trying to get us to make a definition of what ISIS's army is. You just told us they only had maybe thirty thousand to sixty thousand. That was a CIA. That was a CIA uh, estimate. There you go. The height of the conflict. So in that sense, no, they don't have a large standing army, but the ability for them to get soldiers, as they call themselves in our countries, means that they might have a very large army that you can't really quantify very easily. And it sounds like they also have this sort of total war mindset where every member of the society is a potential soldier. Right. That's interesting. ISIS's view is essentially anyone is a legitimate target, more accurately said. Now you're saying total war in that sense, and that is, David, actually definition of total war. It's not just that everyone in your society has potential to be a soldier, Mm -hmm. is that everyone on the enemy's side is a target of war in some way. Okay. Okay. Uh, There is no border to the war. Exactly. War is absolute. Everyone is a legitimate target. Uh, In World War II, you see bombing uh, civilian targets or factories or things like that. That's total war. Exactly. And ISIS identifies total war in a much more radical scale than any other state would total war. Because for ISIS, that means that anyone can be killed. States, for example, if you think of total war as Sherman's March through Georgia, for example, an American Civil War, that was total war because it hit the economy of the enemy, because it made civilians victims insofar as it burned down their homes or requisitioned food from them. But in ISIS's case, by everyone being a target, it means that anyone can and should be killed, right. all of its enemies. doesn't make difference whether they are in arms, whether they support a government or not, whether they are children, the adult adults, you know, pensioners. And what ISIS does is it projects power, like I said, but entirely differently from a regular state. The U.S. projects power for its aircraft carriers and for its economy. Does ISIS have those? No. I mean, they have an economy, I suppose, but... They have, they have a black market economy, yeah. but they, they certainly don't have the U.S. economy backing right. them up. What they do have, though, is the ability to strike virtually anywhere. And they have that because they have an ideology. That is incredibly inspiring to a certain subset of people, that gives them meaning, that makes their lives make sense, and it can drive them to horrendous acts of violence. And it doesn't drive the types of people who you might expect to be capable of violence to this either. Yeah. The people that fight in the name of ISIS, that become soldiers and martyrs in the name of ISIS, aren't always the kind of people you would expect to die for a religious cause or for a state cause. They come from all segments of society. But predominantly, they come among young, disaffected men, people with criminal records, people with no-end jobs, that end jobs. They are people who feel like they're strangers in their own communities, people who feel like they're failures in life, people who feel ostracized from society, and people who suddenly just want to find meaning in life. Essentially, a group of people who has community nowhere else aside from what they might find in ISIS. And it's not a physical community that one finds in ISIS so often. Right. The space where this ISIS community is being created is so often the internet. It's in these digital spaces where the ISIS community is, is shared, where it's created where people begin to feel like they're part of this cause, where they're recruited, 
and where they think of themselves eventually as soldiers of ISIS. And this is different. This is different not just how any state acts. It's different how any other terrorist organization has acted before ISIS. The traditional sort of the grandfather, the model of terrorist organizations that were familiar in the U.S. is Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda had a very systematic way of recruiting. It was all about the cell model. We had a few trusted lieutenants that would seek out other converts. They would seek out other trusted men to fight for the cause. They, uh, so many Al-Qaeda agents were well-educated. They came from prosperous homes. Bin Laden, as many of you know, came from family millionaires. Right. Yeah. Love PlayStation 2. He did. Who doesn't? And that was, that was not rare. So much right. the Al-Qaeda leadership did. Yeah. And so many of its foot soldiers did as well. They recruited among university students, among engineering students, among middle class, respectable families. They recruited people who knew firsthand, from mosques, from shops, from work. And that was a very face-to-face centralized model of recruitment. So essentially Al-Qaeda was doing it analog while ISIS is now going and utilizing these digital tools to go about recruiting. Exactly. And these tools are are multifarious. It's not just one tool that ISIS was using. ISIS has really recognized how powerful digital spaces are for spreading ideologies and for organizing people. Can I say, this sounds like, and so in our first episode, we were talking about Nazis online and Nazi mm-hmm. recruitment tactics, the, the type of people they go after, the type of methods that they use, um, and how those manifest in reality. And it sounds like ISIS is essentially does the exact same thing, just with a lot more effectively. It's nearly one-to-one, yeah. It's, but yeah, but in terms of methodology, like this is, these are the kind of disaffected, um, you know, people who, who need to find a purpose or, or you know, all, all these things that you listed, this is the exact same pool to go after. That's, that's, very, that's very correct. And it shouldn't surprise us because these are radical ideologies. I mean, obviously there's a world of difference between Nazism and uh, the radical Sunni Islam preached by ISIS. Right, in terms of methodology. At the same time, what they share is a belief that a world as it is is fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. It needs to be radically remade. And the solutions it gives are so outside the pale of civilization of norms that will obviously they'll target people who feel already like they're on the fringes of that society. Different ideologies, but they work in responding to many of the same dissatisfactions that people have from their current community. And one of the appeals of Nazism, 21st century Nazism as well as of Third Reich and of ISIS, ISIL, is this fact that they're trying to create a community for people to take part in. Community building is so important mm-hmm. for radical for radical ideologies. Yeah. It's not something that we think of is at the heart of them, but it absolutely is. It's creation community and belonging. It's really all these people wanted, just some friends. I mean I mean yeah, I mean kind <laughs> of. I mean they, no, I mean that, that makes sense. That if you're on the fringes of society, you have I mean, the sort of joke is like these people have no stake in society, like who knows what they'll do. Like that's but I mean It's not a joke, cer- yeah. Uh, to a certain degree, like, yeah, no, that's that's the most ideal candidate to join up for your your new one world government that you're trying to to build. So I do have a question about all of this because we're we're talking about a lot of facts that we've or that you have uh, researched and you've produced or no, you haven't produced, but you've discovered in your research. I'm not inventing evidence now. <laughs> That's a <laughs> big no. That was a historical profession. Great story, Stefan. <laughs> So you're bringing a lot of the evidence that you found in your research, but 
what sort of sources are you using to get all of this evidence? Because we know a lot of this is digital, but what kind of spaces are we talking about as digital spaces that this recruitment is going on in, or that this ideology is being disseminated through? Yeah, that's a great question, Evan, and I, I really should backtrack a little bit now. Okay. So let's, uh, we'll talk about a few different kinds of sources. Uh, so a very common one, and very basic, I mean, this is the technology that's been around since the first days of the internet, are simply just chat rooms and forums. Right. They were used originally by other fringe groups such as neo-Nazis, uh, anarchists, communists. They were used by ISIS as well. But the fact is, is people are much more tech-savvy in using the, the 21st century than they were 10, 20 years ago. So ISIS is actually one of the groups that it's recruiting from are young people who are very versed technology, who have programming experience. And they're better at creating these websites that won't as easily be tracked by foreign intelligence services that'll show up in the dark web that people can find and you know, keep on going to time and time again before they're shut down by the many forces that are combating ISIS. The most basic level is just forums. And in these forums, you'll find people talking about the newest ISIS victory. You'll find a lot of videos. Videos are very common by ISIS. Mm -hmm. uh, the traditional ISIS video is the kill video. It's a video of a young woman or man, usually men, actually, who are, have been held prisoner by ISIS, usually Westerners, but other times other Muslims, and their executions. And they're, they're edited to heighten the drama. They're actually edited like action movies. ISIS is incredibly savvy to what you might think of as Western marketing and movie and advertising techniques. Mm -hmm. If you look at some of the, the videos, recruitment videos made by ISIS, they look like a Jerry Bruckheimer produced ad for the U.S. Army, for example. Right. They have incredibly fast cuts. They show young men in heroic poses. Well, you don't find music because uh, it's haram in their standing, ISIS understanding of Islam, that means forbidden. You find kinds of images that are made to, to spur men into action, to make fighting and dying for ISIS seem glamorous and heroic. Mm -hmm. You'll also find images that are created to denigrate the enemies of ISIS. So for example, so much of a kill video isn't a moment that someone's head has been cut off. And what ISIS found is that people don't actually like to see heads being cut off in the moment. Okay. So you actually see this change in ISIS videos over time, where now, in the last couple of years, the focus has been so much more to lead up to the murder and not so much just membering itself. A lot of these videos will actually cut off with the final swing of the scimitar. So this is, this is about giving people like a chance to just revel in the, I mean, in their view, like sort of the, the justice that's about to be performed, essentially. Exactly, and yeah. they're really made to humiliate the victims, yeah. to make them feel powerless. And they're sometimes done with these point-of-view shots where the idea is the viewers placing themselves as the executioner. Another thing you'll find that ISIS is very good at is actually just magazines. Right. But, but not the print press, because let's face it, the print press is dead. Yeah, no, ISIS, is, even in ISIS Syria, knows right? that, yeah. Also, I don't know any uh, service that would deliver ISIS newspaper, <laughs> you know, uh, magazine. Yeah, I'll get you on a list real quick. <laughs> So ISIS, for its history, has had two magazines. Okay. The Beek and Ramia. The current one is Ramia. Mm -hmm. It translates to Rome. That's because ISIS's end goal is the taking of Rome from the Christian infidel. Right. It's, uh, the Crusaders, ISIS, they say. The Crusaders. But it's not just the Crusaders. They actually sometimes they talk about fighting the Roman Empire again. Right. Yeah, I've looked through a few of these. Not so much recently, but a few years back. And my understanding is that it's the, the magazine has evolved over time. 
But yeah, the, the the framing of any Western force, it seems, is crusade terminology and stuff. Like, I mean, it's, it's framed as a holy war, it, obviously, but... It, uh, it sort of sounds almost like Islamic military nostalgia, almost, for the days of the 7th century, where they were literally fighting the Romans. They were, in the 7th yeah. century, fighting the Byzantines. Mm-hmm. The grand contradiction of ISIS is how modern they are in their advertising and so many other methods, mm-hmm. but how obsessed they are with history. Oh, no, that's one, that's one too many things I have in common with ISIS, David. <laughs> coincidentally, that is that combination yeah. of being incredibly savvy technologically and being ready to accept new technologies while having their worldview associated in the past is shared by the Nazi party. You know, the it's funny thing is that that crusader, well. that crusader uh-huh. terminology and imagery and stuff, it's just the reverse of what these modern Nazis do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, where the Nazis are see themselves as they, the crusaders. They are the crusaders, yeah, yeah, fighting the, yeah. But what I mean with that, so let's talk about the ISIS magazine. Yeah, yeah, this is a fascinating thing. Yeah, uh, It's released in eight languages. Uh, it's online. It seems to get the most uh, hits. It's read the most in the English version, the Arabic language version, and the French. This actually has borne out, if you look at sort of the areas that ISIS has been able to recruit in. It has been rather successful in the Francophone world. Because the large number of disinfected immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East who came to France after the Second World War, and many were insufficiently integrated by the French government. Mm-hmm. French government's infamously bad at integrating its its non-French population. Algier. Uh, Algier from Algeria. Belgium has the same problem with its French-speaking population. And the magazine, if I could, uh, if I could make one comparison to what it looks like the most, yeah, it's kind of People magazine. <laughs> It's People Magazine for terrorists. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good that's a good comparison. Does it have a, like a cover page featuring a new Martyr uh, of the Week? Mu- I've got is it Mujahid? A new a new yes. jihadi? Yeah. No, you see it. I mean, there's yeah, it's just like I mean, there's infographics in here about like the new currency they're trying to implement. So oh, David has it, David so has a copy is, of it. Actually, I got it right is, here. Yeah. Oh, actually, so that that infographic, right? Yeah. So that inf- there's um, and we'll put a link to the. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll totally add a link. The yeah. link to the ISIS magazine. So ISIS believes that paper money should be destroyed. Yeah. He wants to go back to the old-fashioned currency of copper, silver, and gold. But uh, like, the, it's, like I said, this mix of technology and the old, that's obviously how the economy worked back in the 7th century, is they have a super glossy infographic that explains the superiority of copper and gold money to print money. It says, for example, gold never loses value in times of a war. Yeah, it actually I, increases in value, unlike paper money. I love this. Yeah, paper money possesses no intrinsic value. Islamic money possesses actual value. Is literally what the the argument is. Which I'd love to tell him about the crisis of the third century and how metal money did actually lose value, <laughs> and how, for example, we only give value to gold. gold yeah, is not a, it's not inherently worth. It's anything. just a yeah. thing on the periodic table. <laughs> right, right. Well, you decide actually had some real life value. <laughs> so, for example, there's the infographics. There's other. There's just uh, recruitment ads. So there's a striking image on the last page, and this is a recurring image. And a lot of the, lot of the issues in the magazine, is it's an image of Al-Mujahideen, an ISIS fighter, in uh, in military garb and camo. And it's important he's in uniform because having a uniform is a sign of statehood. Mm-hmm. And he's literally facing down 10 F-21 fighter bombers and Blackhawks coming right at him yeah. with, a, with a quote from the Quran at the top, which promises that he who has faith in Allah will never fear his enemies. Right. 
This is a very heroic image. It's a it's huge like a movie poster type thing. It, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a movie poster. Coming soon. And you'll find these movie poster-like images everywhere. Uh, interesting, you'll find them sometimes next to very dense discussions of Islamic theology. Yeah, I mean, there's pages of text, just, just straight up black text on a white background. David's been, basically, since we started this conversation, David's been scrolling down the, the magazine, um, and it's just, it's been constant text. And you'll also find, even in these very glossy images, and I said infographics are used, advertisements are used, you also find uh, constant references to the Quran or to other sort of uh, theological writings, interpretations of Islam. Right. And what's interesting is, is this is almost shorthand for ISIS. Is ISIS it gives the use of Quranic quotes is used to create a common language for ISIS fighters, a common reference point of motifs of themes. Right. Almost as an extra national way of discussing what they're doing. Giving those people who identified ISIS a common language, mm. a common understanding of, if not exactly values, at least of catchphrases. Right, yeah. And they're often used like that because if, when you read for a while the ISIS magazine, and trust me, I've read for a lot of the ISIS magazine, you'll find that it just starts using formulas. You, you start seeing the same Quranic verses repeated and repeated, almost like a mantra, almost like right. an advertisement. Interesting. And like a tagline, almost, tagline. or something. Yeah, yeah just that's do probably it, whatever. the best word for it. Yeah. And the other thing, the reason I compare it to People Magazine, is there, there's constant issues on the martyr of the week, yeah. the martyr of the month. Yes. And think about... You know, I've always said it's these young, disaffected men who are fighting and dying for ISIS. Well, this kind of recognition that they get from being named a fighter, the martyr of the month, it gives them meaning, posthumous meaning, but meaning nonetheless they are named as individuals. Mm-hmm. I see. Every issue of the ISIS magazine, its current and its older form, has obituaries of the leading, as they're called, martyrs. And... In a way, the people who are fighting and dying for ISIS, one of the things that attracts them to ISIS is the idea they will be memorized. Yeah. People will talk about it. They will have a picture of them. They will have a name. Of people without a community going to a place where they'll be seen. Where, exactly. Like in multiple ways. And yeah. embraced. Yeah. Almost always, the image on the front cover, I've yet to see an ISIS magazine where the image on the front cover is of someone living. Interesting. It's... It's well. It's it's a it's an image of that person while they were alive, right? Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. It's not just dead people, but right. like a person who has died you, very recently. And okay, what ISIS sees a particularly heroic way to die. Yeah, ISIS magazines well uh, are incredibly also globalist in their view. And David, you've, you've talked about this. Is it's a global ideology? Right. Yeah. The the idea of attempting to create a state that exists without borders, basically. So one of the things the ISIS magazine has done, especially in the last couple of months, as ISIS is beginning to lose territory and has lost considerable amounts of territory in Syria and Iraq, yeah. is it has begun to brand itself more and more as a global magazine, touching global issues and look at So the issue number 10, for example, which came out in April, had a very long interview with ISIS fighters in the Philippines. Okay. That's seen as a new front that's being being opened up in light of the losses in Syria, for example. Why the Philippines? Because there is actually a large... Uh, uh, the Philippines have a Muslim minority that most people forget about in America when they think about the Philippines. Yeah. We don't think about the Muslim minority there. And it's a 
very disaffected one. It's one that's frequently looked down on by its government. Some of its civil liberties are being repressed. The current regime in the Philippines is repressive to begin with, mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. two ethnic and religious minorities. And ISIS has been able to recruit from it. Mm-hmm. And there have been a number of terrorist attacks within the last 18 months in the Philippines. Interesting. Nine Arab usually associated with radical Islam. But the ISIS magazine has a five-page long interview with an officer of ISIS who's fighting who's fighting in the Philippines, who's hiding out in the jungle there and he's coordinating activities. And he's trying to build, actually, an ISIS army and being in the Philippines. So sort of using... So as the Syrian front is kind of deteriorating and that meat space state is going out, to use a term David likes, um, we've got the cyberspace state trying to basically set up new ground wars elsewhere to kind of continue the fight. That's interesting. In a way, almost um, distract its core audience, the people it's trying to recruit from the reality of the fact they're losing ground. Right. It's also to encouragement propaganda saying, you know, the fight may look like we're losing, but we're actually opening up new fronts, winning new victories every day. And it's very broad in its coverage. The war coverage, there's a section of HS Magazine which is just called War Coverage Front by Front, and it discusses uh, Islamist attacks in Manchester, in Baghdad, in Damascus, and in the Philippines, in Malaysia, Indonesia. It's very much a global focus. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you'll find are these, uh, these videos. So if you look at, it's very hard in the United States to find uh, first-hand digital versions of a lot of ISIS press. You have to look at different NGOs and different think tanks that are trying to essentially find these in the Middle East and these websites that are quickly taken down by CIA, also by different web servers from countries, and just kind of replicate them. But you look at the digital version, if you're able to access it, it's the original, Mm -hmm. when a site host devices, is the all-linked videos. Okay. The first couple of pages of the digital magazine all link to different videos. And some of these images, are, videos are, like I said, the kill videos, the execution videos. But that's not their only genre. Mm-hmm. For example, there is a self-help series of videos. There's a line of ISIS-produced videos that tell you how to be a good wife or a good husband. Right. Interesting. And the ISIS magazine will give you tips, such as don't backtalk about your wife or husband. Mm-hmm. Or they'll say what kind of clothes you should wear. And sometimes even give style tips. Wow. Uh, ISIS, the connection uh, to People Magazine is getting more and more. ISIS does not out. have a very good sense of style, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So what they're trying to prove is we are not like we are a state for all all your needs. Like we we have the legitimacy of a real state. We can meet not only these military needs and theological, but like just daily life and stuff. Exactly. Mm. And yeah. also, they're so happy. Yeah. If you look at the photographs or the images are hosted in the ISIS press. Mm-hmm. It's always of incredibly happy people. Mm-hmm. It's these community images. It's men sitting around a fire, uh, a group of theologians looking at the Quran, people mm-hmm. in a library. There's one image of an ISIS officer joking with small children on the street mm-hmm. of a rock while was held by ISIS. And again, it's this idea of creating community for these images and for this press. There's the most famous ISIS video, though, and it was linked in the old in the old ISIS magazine, is a so-called slave market video. Right, yeah, that thing blew up for a while online. You can find it on YouTube, and yeah. it's this image of these free uh, ISIS soldiers after the city of Raqqa fell, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how they'll be buying a woman in the slave market. Uh, according to ISIS law, anyone taken as a prisoner of war has the right to be sold as a slave. Slavery is fully legal, mm-hmm. but you have to be sold for gold. They cannot be sold for paper money. 
which is yeah. for reasons we've outlined. We've discussed that, yes. Right. Uh, but you can also be awarded slaves for military service to ISIS. Oh, yeah. So it's this image of uh, this video that goes on for about five minutes you can find on YouTube. And we'll, we'll link it as well. If you go on my website as well, which we'll have a link to. Yeah, yeah, totally. Of uh, these men talking, ISIS soldiers talking about how excited they are to be able to choose a woman tomorrow. And they're jokingly trying to saying, I hope you find one with good teeth. And I'm saying, we can't, don't, there's no woman with good teeth once we get Pat through with them. Which is obviously advocating uh, horrible violence Beating, against yeah. women. Uh, and one, there's a soldier that adds, well, as long as she doesn't have a tongue, because I don't want to listen to her. Oh, yeah. And this is actually the core constituency of ISIS that this video was made for. This is not a video that was made to show how terrible ISIS was. Right. This is a recruitment video. Interesting. It's to show yeah, how yeah. great life is for ISIS soldiers. Right. Mm. This could be you, yeah. And a good parallel, and I, I hope the World War II parallels are okay. Go for it, yeah. yeah, yeah. If, uh, so if you look at images of max executions, for example, in the Third Reich, mm-hmm. in a lot of them, there are images where actually the German soldiers are laughing while they're doing it or smiling. Mm-hmm. And they're smiling for the camera. Someone said, say cheese. And the ISIS videos are the same way as these are images of horrible, of horrible terrorists of civilians of people being treated as beasts of being dehumanized but for their core constituency they are meant to be uplifting right, right. there are something you can say cheese to and smile it's a disturbing thought but it's it's there it's evident in the iconography of isis it yeah. is they seem to be hyper aware of branding i suppose i'd say the idea of like like they really know how to reach people in in the sense of like uh like, like selling themselves as a this might be a crude way of putting it, but like, like selling selling ISIS as a product to buy, you know, like like to, to buy into. Even in even in the the magazine that we were talking about, there's images in here of these. These are clearly staged images, I assume, because you've got images of soldiers with scimitars facing down armies of crusaders, of crusaders and things like. I they're going out of their way to think about how to best present themselves. Uh, you know, online to, to, to their audience that's out there. Fascinatingly enough, there was a piece done, I believe, in uh, 2015 uh, by the Independent, it's a British, uh, British press, mm-hmm. where they had, they were one of very few people, Tiny Maria was able to get an interview with someone who was very high up in ISIS. And when they sort of asked them, how does the image of ISIS come from? You know, how do you get, what do you look for as inspiration for your images? He straight up said, U.S. Army, U.S. Army recruitment. Right. Sort of the glorification of that role as defender of this state, essentially, and looking at sort of how the language that's used. Uh, think of the Marine ads, be all you can be, be a Marine. Okay. Right. I was literally, I was just thinking of that ad. I don't know if, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but there is an ad of uh, a cliff and this dude is climbing the cliff and he's like, oh, like, I know, yeah. and he gets to the top and when he gets to the top, all of a sudden it's like, he sparkles, and then the Marine uniform is on him, and he's like made it to the pinnacle. I, that's the exact kind of like feel that I get from all the all the ISIS literature that I'm I've been looking at. An implicit team in this propaganda. And I'm talking about the U.S. and the ISIS line in this case. Right. Yeah. Is this thing of self-actualization? Yes. Yeah. Self-actualization okay. through belonging to this community for taking on that role. That's the whole point of the yeah, Marine line: be the, all you can be. Right. Right. And that's the narrative the ISIS magazine is also pushing. Mm-hmm. But it's just be all you can be, but death is what makes you be all that you can be. That's why you can only get that recognition 
of having a glossy spread about you once, well, I don't want to be crude, but once you blow yourself up. Right. This was the, miss- the missing part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that almost creates this posthumous community. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That is, uh, is a big selling point of ISIS. These disaffected individuals. We don't yeah, have that sure. meaning. Right, not in life, yeah. It is also, um, I mean, you know, going back to the military recruitment thing, like, I mean, the U.S. military does a, does a similar thing of recruiting from, you know, people who are not, I, I, I want to make sure I'm saying this right, because I don't want to, like, insult everybody in the military, but, like, there is a, a they, the military tends to recruit from people who are poor, like, they need money through the military, or the military gives them purpose, or it's, it's a tradition thing, or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's provided as an option to other careers, essentially. Right. And, you know, as and maybe more, that's a bad analogy, but... No, I, I, think it's, I think it's a fair one insofar as military service has always been seen, and when I say always, I'm going back as far as the Romans yeah. and the Greeks as something that gives one purpose, that creates an incredibly strong, vibrant community. That's not to denigrate the army at all. I, I study right, military ISIS history. Is, ISIS is using the same... Right, they, they've strategy. seen what works. They're using the same strategies, right? That is, and... It's fascinating to see how comfortable they are with the trappings of Western civilization and Western technology. While at the core of their beliefs, they want to destroy it all and watch it burn. Almost says, it's a tool that's useful to us now, so we'll use it. Exactly. In the end game, which, if we're realistic, will never come. ISIS's end game is impossible, the creation of a worldwide caliphate. Mm -hmm. These technologies will all essentially dissipate. Mm -hmm. There'll be no more need for them. They are seen as tools. But it's so fascinating to see just how effective ISIS is harnessing these tools. Right. Do you think there's a chance that future organizations or groups might see what ISIS did and say, well, that clearly, like, we, we see the parts that work, though. Like, we could apply it better over here. I mean, Refine this strategy. Basically, like, yeah, like, is this, are, are they setting up a, a new playbook, I guess is kind of how I would say it. Definitely. They've rewritten the playbook. The playbook of 2010, the playbook that was used to take down Osama bin Laden, does not work. Well, and there is a consensus in the intelligence community that that's no playbook. ISIS has created a new playbook. Think of how, how, would, how they would use to go after terrorists. Do, uh, do you guys know a little bit? Or you might or how, do we, how do we take down bin Laden? Oh. That's, I mean, that's, that's something I'm not entirely familiar with. I, I don't with. know Bin Laden specifically, but my understanding was that the idea was you try to take out the top of the cell, the terrorist cell, and in doing that, you essentially... Cut off con- communication. You, yeah, you cut off communication, you cut off, uh, I mean, organization and, and um, like, orders can't get through anymore, I suppose. Well, if, uh, have any of you seen the, the, the classic film, The Battle of Algiers? Yes, I love it. It's a great film. Yes. Uh, there's a famous scene where the French colonel because he's, uh, for those who need a context, the Battle of Algiers talks about the Algerian insurgency, the civil, the Algerian independence movement from France. And the Algerians used, or you might say, so, so, sort of said this prototype of terrorist tactics, insurgent tactics. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where a French colonel who's put in charge of putting down the insurgency explains how they'll get the Algerians. And he draws a pyramid, mm-hmm. essentially, of cells. And he says, we'll find the lowest member of the cell, and we'll get him, and he will lead us to the one he's, who he's answering to. Right. And we'll get him, and we'll get his commander, and you work your way down from the top. Mm-hmm. And when you identify one part of a cell, then you try to infiltrate that network. So then you'll 
you'll survey their families. You'll see which mosque they're going in. You'll see which company they're keeping. And they try to identify targets from that. Very much working your way up and from down to up. Yeah. That's a traditional model. And that's what we used to give in one. We essentially try to look for people who might have contact with him and work from there. They got him through finding a courier. The difficulty and with that, with ISIS, is the sites of radicalization and organization are not in the one-to-one contact. Right. The fact you can self-radicalize mm-hmm. gives you so much more anonymity and protection from law enforcement than someone who's radicalized for a mosque or a friend or a cousin from any kind of you know, face-to-face personal contact. Mm-hmm. You can no longer try to just take down a cell to get ISIS down. Because all of these lone wolf attackers are claiming the mantle of fighting for ISIS. And that's a massive challenge for law enforcement. Right. All you have to do is get the idea out there, and then like a virus, it can replicate in the minds of people who just come across it, essentially. And ISIS is very very aware of the technologies that its enemies will try to use against it. Mm -hmm. So think of it like this. Let's say that you are someone who's becoming more and more disaffected with society and becoming more and more radicalized. And let's say every day in your Twitter feed, you talk about how you will fight in a glorious jihad against the Crusaders. Do you think that local law enforcement, if you do this for a while, might hear about you? Yeah. (laughs) Because it's common sense. If you're doing this in the public, in the public eye, people might grow suspicious of you. And originally, in sort of first generation advice in the first year or two, a lot of its recruits were simply, how do you say this, uh, a little too enthusiastic. Okay. Oh. And they would, they would literally just go on Twitter yeah. and they would tweet about how they're planning on blowing up a school or a mosque or a church. And that's a really good way to get law enforcement down on, down on you and be, not to be rude, but send your ass to prison. Right. Uh, currently, in ISIS media, uh, the messages that are sent out in the forums, in the magazine, in the videos that are going on in the dark web that are being sent through. Just through, um, you know, WhatsApp, for example, from cell phones to one to another. That's another major network is people are sending viral videos through cell phones of uh, ISIS propaganda, ISIS attacks, ISIS kill videos. Mm-hmm. What they're telling their recruits is, do not advertise your alliance to us. Do not ad- advertise yourself as a soldier of ISIS until the very moment when the attack is in motion. Yeah. So it isn't necessarily that ISIS in advertising to uh, potential soldiers, to use the term that they're using, uh, it isn't that they're trying to make their propaganda innocuous. They're not inoculating it. But rather they're telling their recruits, just don't go around advertising that you're with us. Exactly. Because if you advertise that, then your chance of a successful attack drop precipitously because there's always a chance that the wrong person will hear it. It's like an army of sleeper agents. Yeah. And that is, that is one of the hallmarks of most ISIS attacks, is a declaration. ISIS is so obsessed with branding, it wants to brand attacks as its own. There's three ways to brand. One is you go on Twitter, and you go on Facebook, you go on social media before the attack, and you declare your loyalty to the Islamic State. And this has happened, the San Bernardino attack, for example, had this element of it. There is the phone call. And the attack in Miami, if you remember during the presidential election, yes. in that case... Uh, the attacker just called the police station, called 911, and said, I'm carrying out this attack in the name of the Islamic State. And there is the, just a verbal declaration. 
And you'll see this in some of the more amateurish attacks, very poorly planned ones, the bus attack, the knife attack recently in London, where the nicest soldier, as they call themselves, with a knife or an axe, will just will yell, my loyalty is with ISIS, or how uh, Akbar, God is great, before they carry out the attack. Mm-hmm. And this branding is important. Sometimes, if you actually see some of these smaller scale attacks, they actually lose the element of surprise by actually yelling that declaration. But that declaration to them is so intrinsic to the message of ISIS because that's the footprint. Right. That's going from the digital footprint of ISIS to the footprint on the ground. That's working with uh, raising the tensions in those communities. It's working to make people feel unsafe, to question whether it's right to actually fight ISIS Mm -hmm. on its own turf. So the branding is actually very essential for the projection of power that... You, you can't be perceived as being able to project your power unless you're getting these digitally recruited individuals to say what their allegiance is. Otherwise, otherwise how, how is anybody going to know it's ISIS? Because otherwise, it's just a crazy guy with a knife attacking someone. Exactly. And that doesn't spread fear. Random knife attacks don't spread fear in societies. Knife attacks are done calculatedly in, to advance radical enemy ideology. Those are terrifying. Or at least the goal of them is to terrify, you know, local, locals, local yeah. crowds. And this works in two ways for ISIS. In one, it's another tool of recruitment. It's another glossy martyr of the week. They can put in their magazine, their websites, their yeah. video. But it also, it sends a message to Western societies and to other Islamic states. We have to keep in mind that most victims of ISIS are other Muslims. Right. This is true of Al-Qaeda as well, mostly said y'all. Group says, it's telling them, we can fight you on your own turf. It's also a way of saying, if you're trying to fight against us in Syria, if you're backing the opposition, if you're backing Assad, there's a number of attacks against Russian targets, for example, because of Russia's complicity with the regime. It's saying that what you're doing against us in Syria we can make you pay for it at home. It, it's the projection of the omnipresence that, they're, that they want. And it's this deal, the Syrian war, I find personally so fascinating because it works on all of these dimensions. The local, the great power level, and the global. All right, this has been a great conversation that we're having. But unfortunately, this topic is too big for only one episode. So we're going to have to ask you to come back again next episode where we can finish this talk about war in the digital age and how this is affecting everything. It's an unprecedented topic. I think it deserves a second episode. Yeah, it deserves a second episode. I'll be happy to be back. All right, thanks so much. Thank you. That was pretty awesome. That was, that was a great episode, in my opinion. Uh, and for everybody out there who is thinking, how do we get more of this guy, this Stefan, this soon-to-be Dr. Stefan Georgievich? Well, you are so in luck, because he's coming back next episode for part two. I call him, in my head, Dr. George. Why? <laughs> because it's cool and short, and I like it. Yeah, George is a very cool name. But, like, but it's spelled with a DJ. Yeah, Dr. DJ would be much better. Evan, can you say you'd call him Dr. DJ? Okay.
I call him in my own head and to nobody else uh, alive, except for you, David, and all of our listeners. Oh, boy. Oh, man. Oh, such a... I forgot what the original sentence even was. I call... <laughs> I call so many parentheticals. are recording a joke I already made. <laughs> you know, David, I call him Dr. DJ. Dr. That's DJ. That's how he spelled Georgievich. Oh, yeah. His name is spelled with a DJ yeah. instead of a G. Maybe, maybe he can team up with uh, the Electric Jew. <laughs> the Electric Jew. <laughs> from episode one. There's one one guy from Nigeria used to call me Dr. Anderson because my initials are D.R. Anderson. That You know, honestly, maybe, I, for all I know, he actually believed I was a doctor. It was never actually established that he calls me Dr. Anderson because of my initials. You just assumed it. I just assumed it was the only thing that made sense. If you want to hear more about Dr. DJ talking about the Syrian Civil War, join us for part two of our two-part series where we talk about Instagram and social media and how everybody from regimes to freedom fighters to just ordinary people are trying to control the information that the world hears about this war it's really interesting i'm super excited for for the second part be there be square guys it's david again our show is over went a little long this time but that's just because there was so much good good knowledge getting dropped but time for credits first i want to take one last opportunity to thank our special guest stefan georgievich for being with us he's a smart guy who loves what he does got a ton of respect for him and as always thanks to something unreal for his windows xp remix and artificial.music for their rockingly chill song herbal tea which is what we're listening to right now Fake out. Thanks for dropping in.